Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast, Episode 33. Brian Atwater. Thanks for listening. Not Jay Harlan Bretz, Brian Atwater. With a new twist, I've got a new uh, idea on what to do with at least a few of these podcast episodes. We'll see if you like it. Um, Brian Atwater is in the here and now. He's still with us. He lives in Washington, lives just a couple hours away over in Seattle. And very modest fellow. But I think it's safe to say that he's one of the most important geologists of the 20th century. And I've already talked about Brian a fair amount. If you recall, we were talking about great earthquakes and the big discovery of tsunami deposits along the coast of Washington, etc. And that was kind of self-contained into that podcast episode. But I'm back talking about Brian because of this new approach that I've stumbled onto, in part because of suggestions from many of you. So thank you for that. Um, The quarter is over with. I'm on break, and I like to stay busy. So one of my projects has been to organize, and usually when you organize, you think, okay, well, you're going to clean up your office and file those papers or whatever, and that's the way we used to organize things. But, of course, we now have laptops, and we've got other uh, gadgets that need organization. And I've been meaning to figure out what's going on with YouTube. And specifically what I mean is, um, I think it was this fall, I was was, uh, somehow, somebody asked about some uh, lahar deposit out by Thorpe, Washington, and I thought, oh, wait a minute, I did a a little roadside geology episode on that, you know, almost 10 years ago. Let's see if I can find that on YouTube. And I I'm surprised I didn't know this before, but I I, uh, I saw two versions of that video that we did. One hosted on CWU's YouTube channel, and then a, another version of it, same episode, but hosted on Nick Zentner's YouTube channel. And I'm like, I don't think I have a YouTube channel. Wait, what is this? And I'd totally forgotten that seven years ago I made a YouTube channel, um and loaded these uh, old TV programs that I did uh, here at Central, back when we had a cable TV channel. And that's really one of the first things I did for public outreach is make this TV program called Central Rocks. Corny, I know. I think I even came up with it. Um, So I found this Nick Zentner YouTube channel, and it was kind of an out-of-body experience because, uh, first of all, I'd totally forgotten about it, and second of all, there were like 3,000 subscribers. Uh, And if you're unfamiliar with the YouTube world, that simply means that people click on your channel, and then they get kind of uh, notified when you um, add things to the channel. Uh, I watched YouTube uh, programs uh, on on my feed, and, and I subscribe to music and sports and other things, and uh, uh, go there pretty regularly. I'm, probably, I'm guessing many of you do too. So I immediately was surprised. Second of all, I felt guilty that people had subscribed to this program or this YouTube channel, and nothing has been there for seven years. So I apologize if uh, if that's you. 
Uh, but then I got to thinking, well, wait a minute, I've got all these old TV programs that I made for television, quite literally. Uh, I was interviewing geologists that would visit Ellensburg. I was interviewing geologists that I worked with. Uh, this was all in, in the mind of just talking to people, you know, within a 60-mile radius. There really weren't anybody, uh, there, there weren't any viewers beyond that uh, with the TV channel. But of course, uh, Central put those on YouTube, and uh, I, I realized they were on Central's YouTube page, but or YouTube channel, but not me. So that got me thinking, and then I started watching a few of those old TV interviews and those old roadside geology. I, we had Central Rocks, the interviews, and then Central Rocks, roadside geology, where we made these short geology programs. All right, well, anyway... Some of it's absolute garbage. Uh, I was new and didn't really have a good feel for what I was up to. And I was working with a couple guys here at Central, and they were trying to figure out who, who I was and what I wanted to do. So it was kind of rookie-type stuff, at least from my point of view. However, there were a few key moments uh, within some of those 30-minute interviews that I thought were valuable. And... So, cutting to the chase, Brian Atwater visited Ellensburg to give a talk back in 2006, and he visited with some of our grad students, and he visited with some of the faculty folks. We took him out to a meal, of course. I'm not even sure we had him stay overnight, but anyway, we all enjoyed his visit, and uh, he was uh, excited to talk about his latest work. Uh, but with this TV thing I had, which, there was a little TV studio just the next building over from where I was working in Lind Hall. Uh, at some point in his tight schedule, I just grabbed him and said, would you come on over in 30 minutes? You know, I'll, I'll uh, instead of just visiting in my office, can we just visit in front of some cameras? I must have alerted him to it now that I think about it. But anyway, he agreed. And uh, so we filmed this 30-minute interview. I have selected three short clips from that 2006 interview and I'd like and I figured out how to um, trim them down and I also figured out how to extract just the audio and uh, by the way if you want to see the video clips of the Brian Atwater audio clips that you're about to hear um, or if you want to see the full interview of 30 minutes if you got some spare time um, you can go to my Nick Sentner YouTube channel and uh, check it out. Uh, so anyway, um, let me set this up just a little bit, and then we'll, we'll try to play these three uh, segments. By this point in 2006, Atwater was very well known. Just the previous year, in 2005, he was one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the United States. Uh, back when people read magazines. And, uh, and his work was being recognized uh, very, very quickly after uh, his tremendous discovery. Uh, quickly, meaning, you know, in the 1990s and the early 2000s, he was embraced. So there are parallels to J. Harlan Bretz. And in fact, I was very pleased and surprised to see that I actually asked him about a comparison to Bretz. Uh, even though I knew very little about Brett's back in 2006. Um, so he comments on that a little bit. 
Um, but the, the basic thing is um, he was well-established by this point and was uh, happy to talk about his discoveries. Uh, this first clip, um, I'll say one more thing. Uh, I was a, a very new to the interview game. I was, I think this is like the fourth show that we did. And of course, I had everything scripted in my mind and I had all my questions kind of written out for myself. And uh, Brian was the first guy to uh, loosen me up. Basically, he just kind of grabbed hold of what we were doing and just kind of freelancing. And I realized that if you wanted to do something effective as an interviewer, you needed to just give the guest the latitude to kind of go where they wanted to go. You just have to listen very hard and be willing and confident to uh, to let them go. It's also a nice plus if you'd actually keep your mouth shut and let the guy talk. Uh, I think there's a little bit too many of the uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, from me. So try to, uh, well, now that I said that, you'll focus on that. Sorry. But anyway, um, uh, this first clip uh, was a detour. And instead of asking, answering my question, he wanted to kind of reflect on some of his earlier experiences before making his discovery in Washington, which stuck in my mind, by the way, as a way to view the significance of Brett's and talk about Brett's early experiences, I now realize. So, Brian Atwater on the accidents of education. It's, it's the accidents of, of education that are sometimes pretty helpful for a mm -hmm. person. So, so in my case, when I was uh, an undergraduate, I wanted part-time work, and because I was in Central California, I could go to the USGS offices, and lo and behold, somebody f offered me part-time work. And, they said, you know, we've got these bridge cores left over from, from the engineers who uh, built existing or proposed bridges across the bay. Most of them were proposed bridges that never got built. They, the, the engineers did beautiful studies, and then the bridges got shot down in referendum. <laughs> but the, but the, the cores were there, and the cores contained hundreds of thousands of years of San Francisco Bay history. Sea levels rising and falling, bay, bay present, bay absent because sea level was lower. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I got interested in, from that in, in studying these, these bridge cores. This and is like his, an internship at the UGSGS? Yeah, it's the USGS essentially. Uh -huh. It was a part-time part job while I was a, a, a master's candidate mostly. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and I'd go down weekends to a warehouse and sift through these thousands of bridge cores. And, 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 I, and I was able to build a, a history for the past 10,000 years of, of sea level change at San Francisco Bay, of how, how the, gold, the, water, the, the sea came into the Golden Gate and sort of filled through the Golden Gate and sort of filled right. the, that interior basin. So that got me thinking about changes in level of sea and land. And then when I, you mentioned that I did graduate work on, on the East Coast, so there at Chesapeake Bay, about Delaware Bay, uh -huh. I got to see the geological records of of gradually rising sea level. For the past 5,000 years or more on the East Coast, um, probably one or two meters per millennium, one or two meters per thousand years, is the average rate of sea level rise. And mm -hmm. the marshes more or less keep their heads above water. So you build up this great big stack of peat as the salt marsh builds up and the sea, sea continues to rise. Mm -hmm. So my, my PhD thesis area in California was such a place in the Central Valley, California a great big stack of peat as much as 10, 15 meters of peat. Spanning the past 
six, seven thousand years. Huh. So, so for me, it was a shock to come here, go out to our Pacific coast, and instead of seeing monotonous stack of peat, yeah. see a see a marsh soil, and then a razor sharp boundary, and and tide flat mud sitting on top of it, or see a, a forest soil and tide flat mud on top sure. of it, and then the tide flat mud builds back up into marsh again, sits there for a while, and then bam. The bottom dropped out, so it was a very jerky rise in sea level that I got, that I got to see here. But it was it was that accident of having had this background in mm -hmm. what typical sea level records look like that made it easy for me to see that there was something different here. And what was the context of you being out there for the first time? Were you working on a completely different project? Never didn't have earthquakes or tsunamis in your head at all? No, I, d I did have earthquakes and tsunamis on the brain at uh -huh. that point. Um, I didn't quite know what to expect, uh -huh. but I'd been tipped off. Um, the, it, this is a story where, as of, say, 1980, uh, earth scientists were pretty certain that you would not get very big earthquakes here. That the, either the plates were completely stuck together forever or that they were sliding smoothly. But then some seismologists started to raise questions about that idea. Mm. And they made comparisons with, with subduction zones like this elsewhere around the world where great earthquakes, earthquakes of magnitude 8 or larger, have occurred mm -hmm. in historical times. And they said, you know, our subduction zone here in the Pacific Northwest looks a lot like those other subduction zones. So maybe we get big earthquakes here, but there haven't been any since Lewis and Clark. And before Lewis and Clark, essentially, you don't have any written records, so right. they said, we just don't know if there's a history here or not. So when I got here in, mid, mid, in, in the mid-1980s, the Mexico City earthquake, 1985, mm -hmm. had just happened. Mm -hmm. Subduction zone earthquake, Mexico City, almost 400 kilometers from that earthquake source. Yet terrific loss of life in Mexico City from tall structures swaying back and forth, hammering against one another, over 10,000 deaths. And, and so this was a real shock to this community here in, in, in Seattle thinking, okay, geophysicists are saying we might get this kind of earthquake here. Seattle sits in that kind of sedimentary basin sure. like Mexico City. Sure. They may happen. Huh. So that's, it was in that, that was the context that I walked into this this, this, this area. Uh, the, the, the seismologists were thinking about it, engineers, public officials were worried about it, but nobody knew. So are you, is it accurate to say that you might even had a, a J. Harlan Brett's existence for a short amount of time, that you were kind of fighting conventional wisdom and you were piecing a story together that was in the face of, of other people saying differently, or this was, People were almost ready for a change in, in, in kind of uh, understanding what's going on. Yeah, I, I, in Brett's case, you know, geology was trying to walk away from the Noachian deluge, right? <laughs> and so for Brett's to come out and yeah. say the entire Grand Coulee was cut in a single flood, right. you know, I mean, right. even today we no longer believe that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, Brett's really had a, his work cut out for him, right. and, and he's I, I'm, I'm not that easy to get along with, but my, as from what I've heard of Brett's, he had a, a, a personality more prickly than mine. So, you know, I, I imagine that, anyways, I didn't, yeah. I've never felt, I never felt um, with this earthquake work that I, uh, that I faced tough adversaries somehow, that because the, the geology spoke for itself. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. um, in the in the late '80s, as 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 the coastal geology started to tell this story, um, I had opportunities to take people on field trips, and these were armada field trips where where we would we would we would rent or borrow from uh, the University of Washington at the time had a big fleet of old beat up Coleman canoes uh -huh. and we'd rent um, moving vans and fill the backs of the moving vans with these Coleman canoes and take them out to Grace Harbor and we'd put a flotilla of 60 or 70 people out on a tide tidal creek at, on a falling tide and we'd go down and look at the creek banks and by the time people had gotten down to the bottom and back they said okay <laughs> you know, it's here, and and we we took the the people we took out included uh, the geologists from the Washington Public Power Supply System, which at the time was trying to complete a nuclear power plant at mm -hmm. Grace Harbor, a structural geologist from USC who was a hired gun for whoops, mm. uh, and so you know he was there paid to be skeptical. No kidding. And and you know by the end of what they saw in the, in the field, they said. This really beats us over the head. We, it, there's something going on here. Okay, kind of a smooth talking kind of. A, it's interesting to hear him describe his work. His, his brain works so differently than most of ours, and uh, it's deliberate and yet creative at the same time. And here's a good example of that. Um, when I just simply asked him to zero in on what he was finding along the Washington coast and what he was showing visiting dignitaries uh, to convince them, even people outside of geology, to convince them that this was something significant. Um, even though from an earlier podcast episode, you know the basics of the Atwater evidence and the significance of it, but to hear, uh, to hear it straight from the horse's mouth, uh, I think is enlightening. So here's Brian back in 2006 talking about his coastal field evidence. We had a couple of other signatures, though, that we dealt with early on, okay. too, that were vital. Uh -huh. um, one is uh, that if this, if this land level change, this subsidence on the coast, this lowering of coast, takes place real fast, and it's taking place right along the edge of the sea, then you'd expect also the sea floor would change its level. Mm -hmm and a sudden change in the level of the sea as you get the sea bottom as you get during a big subduction zone earthquake is the kind of thing that sets off a tsunami because it abruptly changes the surface level of the sea. Mm -hmm. The sea wants to get back to where it was, so gravity takes over and you get a train of tsunami waves. Well, those tsunami waves come into the, in, into the coastal land that's been freshly dropped. And if those tsunami sands have if those tsunamis have sand to eat, they can eat that up coming in and then disgorge it on the freshly downdropped landscape. Mm, mm. And you end up with a sheet of sand as a marker of the tsunami. If you didn't see sheets of sand anywhere on our buried soils along our Pacific coast, and you'd wonder whether these were really great subduction zone earthquakes, sure. because big subduction zone earthquakes are famous for producing tsunamis, as we saw horrifically in 2004. Mm -hmm. So anyways, that Sheets of sand became a very important part of the coastal geological records of our big subduction zone earthquakes here at Cascadia. Mm -hmm. Then there was a third piece of evidence that was key for the engineers. If you're an engineer designing a school or hospital in, in Seattle, even over here in Ellensburg, and you're worried about the long-distance effects of subduction zone shaking, 
uh, you're not going to design for subsidence. You're not going to design for tsunami. You're going to design for shaking. Mm -hmm. Well, you want to. The engineers would want to see that this subsidence and these tsunamis really were accompanied by shaking that might be damaging the buildings. Sure. If they're going to take the trouble to design against subduction zone earthquakes in our region, so uh, a civil engineer named Steve, Steve Obermeyer was the one who along the Columbia River found hundreds of sand-filled cracks that uh, resulted from a kind of a quicksand phenomenon where the ground shakes and, and sand that's loose and wet uh, turns quick just in the way that you can shake sand and, and it will lose its strength. They call it liquefaction uh -huh. and these liquefaction features are present in great abundance along the Columbia. So it's really that, that, that collection onshore of three kinds of evidence, of evidence of abrupt change in land level, evidence that tsunami came ashore, and evidence that the ground shook. And all three of those are out there. So that's a, that's a, uh, uh, that became a compelling uh, combination of sure. evidence. Okay, very good. Um, I've told this story many times, meaning Brian's story, meaning teaching about great earthquakes of the Pacific Northwest. And um, again, in my in my kind of housekeeping frame of mind, um, you know, for the first time in a while, I kind of revisited some of these lectures and other programs that I've done that are on Central's YouTube page. And um, by far, the most popular of the lectures is Great Earthquakes of the Pacific Northwest, where I was talking about Brian and Chris Goldfinger, who's in the news, by the way, uh, Chris Goldfinger. It was the other geologist in the Great Earthquakes episode, uh, sorry, the, the Great Earthquakes lecture that I did for YouTube. Uh, Atwater was finding all this amazing stuff on the coast that you just heard about. And then overlapping with Atwater's work is Chris Goldfinger, who is studying uh, deposits offshore of the Pacific Northwest, under the water of the Pacific Ocean, going to submarine canyons and looking for debris flows that are from underwater uh, landslides that barrel down these submarine canyons. And the working assumption is um, most, if not all, of those underwater landslides are triggered by earthquakes. And um, so Goldfinger's in the news this week, so this is late 26, what year is it? <laughs> it's uh, just in the last few weeks of, of 2019, and Goldfinger just presented at uh, the AGU meeting in San Francisco, the American Geophysical Union. It's a big national geology meeting. And he's on Facebook, Chris Goldfinger is. And uh, last week, he, uh, before he left for San Francisco, posted something like, well, here we go. I'm going to get a lot of flack for this. He was talking to kind of his Facebook friends, quote unquote. Uh, but what he was implying was that uh, this next round of advancement in understanding earthquake history on the West Coast was not going to go down well with everybody. And the context for that comment is, well, first of all, his headline was, he found new submarine evidence uh, to suggest that some of the big earthquakes in Cascadia, some of the great earthquakes, um, were happening at the same time as some big earthquakes on the northern segment of the San Andreas Fault. And this has been hinted at for a while, but apparently this new paper, which I haven't read yet, that Goldfinger was an author on, 
makes this convincing case that from submarine canyons off the coast of Northern California, uh, it's more than just a Cascadia subduction zone risk that apparently he has evidence that there are big earthquakes occasionally where both the Pacific Northwest and a portion of the San Andreas Fault are rupturing at the same time or very close to each other. And of course, that <laughs> the flack he's talking about is from other scientists who are saying he's uh, being un, um, he's uh, kind of inflating uh, interest. He's that's the wrong way to say it. Uh, he's got the data for a certain story, and some of his critics will say he doesn't have enough data to support what he's saying. Um, I've commented before, I'm sure, in this podcast that uh, lots of folks want, for whatever reason, want some sort of connection between volcanoes and earthquakes or this fault and that fault, and they want world seismicity to be kind of uh, all part of one big monster. Um, I don't understand that, but that that is there for sure. And so this new paper and the media coverage of it, if it's not done properly, will spin off into a direction that's probably not good. I feel like I have to mention this. Uh, the other way to interpret Goldfinger's flack is wondering if Atwater will give him some flack. Uh, I won't do a lot on this, but Atwater's work on the coast has a very specific story with specific details about our earthquake past. And here we are in 2019, and there's not a whole lot of uh, agreement between Goldfinger's submarine evidence and Atwater's coastal evidence. And it would be wonderful if both the onshore and the offshore data worked perfectly together and told the same story. It does not. And Atwater has been aggressive at times to clarify that uh, there's a reason that these things aren't connecting up or agreeing uh, in the literature. I'll leave it at that. So um, finishing, uh, in the spirit of this, we're back with Atwater in, tw in 2006. Uh, Sumatra, the great earthquake in the Indian Ocean, happened uh, I guess about a year and a half earlier, in two, uh, day after Christmas 2004. This was in March of 2016 when that water sat down with us. And um, I, I asked Brian to talk about how he convinces people that this is a real thing here in the Northwest. And more specifically, how was he able to figure out that the last great earthquake in the Pacific Northwest happened on January 26th, 1700, nine o'clock local time. Quite a group of us working separately in Washington, Oregon, British Columbia, California, uh, each in his own or her own backyard, as it were, um, putting together earthquake histories along the Cascadia coast and all of us seeing that there was a, that, that there was repetition of great earthquakes going back thousands of years. Average repeat time, something like 500 mm -hmm. years, but a lot of variability. Well, people were asking us, uh, how big are these things? And furthermore, people weren't really comfortable if we'd stand up and say, well, some, sometime between 200 and 500 years ago, there was a great earthquake here. And they'd say, oh, man, they don't know very much. You know? <laughs> so the way, we, the way we stand now, by contrast, is 
is that we can say to people, our most recent great earthquake occurred on the evening of the 26th of January, 1700, and that it was probably magnitude 9. Hmm. And, and when people hear that date of 26 January, 1700, and even about 9 p.m., yeah. they say, oh, this must have really happened. And so for a geologist, it's a wonderful thing. And this didn't come solely from geology. Geology laid the foundations for it. But the, there's, a, there's a book that's just out on this uh, that, that puts it in a way in the, co the front cover here, that, that over on the, on the eastern side of the Pacific, whoops, where is that? The western side of the Pacific here, yeah. we have Japan mm -hmm. in the position of a, of a re tsunami recorder yes. for us with written records being kept uh, from a, the year 700 onward. And so here you have this, this tremendously long written history. Our written history starts in 1800. Mm -hmm. So the year 1700 is no problem, not very long ago for written history in Japan. And the Japanese have wonderful written records mm -hmm. of, a, of an orphan tsunami, a tsunami that, 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 that struck them without a seismic warning. Uh, without, and it was, it was clearly not a, a storm, uh, according to their records. And, and they have lots of orphan tsunamis in Japan. They come from Chile. Uh, in 1960, 138 people died in Japan from a tsunami that came from Chile. Hmm. But, um, so the Japanese uh, historians were interested in these phenomena, these, these floods from the sea, not accompanied by shaking in Japan, and they cataloged them. And, and by the early 1990s, as we North Americans were working out our earthquake history here, the Japanese historians had already identified a tsunami in 1700 as their one orphan tsunami they could not find a home for. Huh. And so they were just sitting waiting for us to tell them <laughs> there was something that happened around 1700 here huh. in North America. Well, that was the Brian Atwater episode, kind of an experiment. Hope you liked it, and you're still listening. Good for you. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Could you be mine? Would you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Could you be mine? Would you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say... Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please won't you be my neighbor? <laughs>